0: This is the podcast for July 2nd, 2010. It's not safe for work.
1: It's the Drift Glass and Blue Gal podcast.
2: Essentially, we are. We are yeah. conspiring against our government, but only in the most benevolent way possible. <laughs> so tonight's topic, today's topic, whenever you listen to this, the topic is it's the economy, stupid, right? Yep,
0: that's our... Yes. And I was listening to a lecture on Audible.com by Thomas Franks, who is the hey. author of several books, one of which is What's the Matter with Kansas? And mm-hmm. the lecture was about the economy and how important it is for the uh, conservative movement to ignore the economics of working people. The, the aggrieved poor people who seem to vote for them mm-hmm. out of family values and Jesus Jesus also just this constant state of aggrievement is that right. the, is that a word
2: yeah, it is now
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> being aggrieved against the liberal victim elite blood. it's victim yes, it's the yes, liberal you, elite the media the liberal media the liberal elite the left mm-hmm. the left coast the you know, yeah. the left-wing uh, New Yorkers who treat us like flyover country.
2: It's all about tr- it's all about comparing their stigmata about yeah. how yeah. horribly, horribly they've been abused and, and yep. treated by the elite, by the invisible elite that they can never quite pin down what they actually do or how they actually screwed them, but they know that they look down their nose at them.
0: Yeah, they look down their lo- n- nose at us, the, the mm-hmm. middle America, the red states.
2: One quick aside, if you've ever seen the uh, documentary Boogeyman, it's really good. It's on uh, Lee Atwater, um, and it, there's a whole section there in the middle about Lee. Lee understood the South, yeah, and he understood that the deep sense of grievance, the anger that mm-hmm. those those elitists know it all, blah, blah, and that's all he played on. Yep. So this is this is pure basic right wing theory. You know, get yeah. a bunch of people who aren't that bright, who who feel genuine economic distress. And whip give, them into a frenzy over.
0: Yeah, give them a beef. Yep.
2: Give them a beef and give them a someone to blame it on. Usually, imaginary hippies, yep. brown people, or women, yep. you, or gays, or immigrants, which yep. are more uh, more all Quran.
0: And the ACLU and uh, you know the abortion doctors yeah. and whatever it is. And <clears throat> the point though that Frank was making is that none of these grievances can ever be resolved. No. Because if they're resolved. Then, the, when they're resolved, for instance, with something like Social Security, yeah. then Just that the becomes end. right. That becomes an adopted uh, third rail, which can't be undone, and is a victory for the left, wing liberal, right, right,
2: the evil left-wing liberals. <laughs> so,
0: left so uh, and and, and that's why it's it's perfectly okay for someone to use their tax refund to attend a tea party. Rally, mm-hmm. You know, to travel mm-hmm. to a tea party rally and mm-hmm. and talk about how horrible it is that they're taxed to death. It's <laughs> like, wait a minute.
2: Well, <laughs> and, and it's it's back? uh, pardon me.
0: Didn't didn't you did you pay taxes this year? And a lot of them didn't. <laughs> you know, an awful lot of them paid no taxes.
2: Yeah, I paid taxes this year. I've, Did you? I have I have paid – yes, i, I pay paid taxes. Oh. i, I paid taxes every year since I was 19.
0: Well, and to clarify, I realize that people that get refunds from the IRS actually often do pay taxes. They just yeah. get overpaid. Yeah. But a lot of the people that attend Tea Party rallies are yeah, in the income bracket where they do not pay federal taxes.
2: But they're in, they're so. in a net no-tax position, right. yeah. Right. No, I, uh, th- this might be the last year for a few years that I pay taxes since I lost my job yeah. for the second time in 18 months. And um, uh, laid off days. again. Oh, laid yes. off again. Laid off again. And I'm getting. I'll tell you. I'll tell you, Blue girl. I'm getting real tired of I being bet. Cassandra. I'm, well, I'm getting tired of being Cassandra. I'm yeah. getting. I, if yeah. I were wrong about things, if I told people, you know, silly, uh, stupid advice or gave them poor directions or what have you, and I got slammed for that. <laughs> yep. Um, that would be one thing. But when I tell you, don't French kiss the open electrical outlet. Please don't French kiss the open electrical outlet. When I tell you, don't pick the gun up. Okay, don't put it in your mouth. Okay, don't cock the – okay, don't pull the trigger. And you go ahead and do all those things and you (laughs) blow your head off. Yep. And it, well, you know, I guess I guess the organization failed. Uh, we're gonna have to get rid of some people. Uh, let's get rid of the guy who's been telling us all along not to do the stupid shit we did.
0: That made the organization fail directly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Directly responsible for making oh, no, the organization the, fail.
2: Yes. The fuck-ups who, who who really who put the bullet holes in the boat, they always somehow find a way to stay.
0: Well, and it's like I sent you a link to Buildung Blog today, which mm-hmm. had a black and white um, screenshot of an old movie called The Big Picture. And <laughs> yeah, did you see that? That yeah. when your boss says that he sees the big picture and you don't, it's because he's <laughs> in it and you aren't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know?
2: And and I can I am now of an, of an age where I've had that conversation with I don't know, many bosses. Some yeah. of them really did. Yeah. But most of them were simply hiding some horribly bad secret or incompetence. The number of bosses I've had who literally got their job You find out afterwards, you know. Why did that woman get that job? And oh, she's sleeping with that guy. Yeah. Oh, it's that simple. Oh, how come that guy? Oh, well, he's he's bribing that Mm -hmm. other person. Mm -hmm. He's that person's brother-in-law. Oh, it's really that simple. It's not whole. It's not terribly complicated.
1: Right. And
2: I put a post up today with um, featuring Sherlock Holmes, and it's entitled something. It's not the best one I ever did, but I'm kind of depressed, so I'm just putting them up quick as I can because I don't want to fall behind on the posting. But it's, um, it's what hiring managers know, and they know never hire Sherlock Holmes ah. because Sherlock Holmes will come – if you hire someone who's actually perceptive and deductive and, and intelligent slash brilliant in your organization to fix a problem, mm-hmm. eventually they're going to turn to the question of how did this problem get started?
0: And it's with them.
2: <laughs>
0: the and, bell and, tolls for you. <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: And they start tugging at all those little loose ends and those little threads, and suddenly everything starts to unravel. Like, how come that dumbass over there with a the big office who doesn't ever show up to work, how come he's here? Yeah. And how come the woman who's sleeping at her desk has been here 15 years? If we're really cutting staff, if we're really short on this or that, if, if you know, if we're really having fiscal problems, how come the people who are really deadwood are still here? And as I pointed out, you know, most of the organizations I've ever worked at—not all, by any means—but most, um, and most that I've heard about, are like alcoholic families. Yeah. Um, I told the boss, half joking, once upon a time that that the reason I'm so, you know, able to operate here is I come from an alcoholic family, (laughs) and I know how to dodge punches. Yeah. But you know, when you are. In a dysfunctional organization, very much like an alcoholic family, you learn there's certain things you just don't talk about. Yep, yep. You just and and you start to notice their whole their whole divisions built to work around certain people mm-hmm. and under certain oh, people, yeah. and oh, yeah. deny that they're really there, deny they're really doing a bad job, deny that he is brain dead or she is where she is because she has, as they used to say, round heels, um, or they're related to people, and that really happens. It really happens mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and.
0: Well, and we should add a caveat that you do work in the city of Chicago. or did. did. So, did. you know, patronage and oh, it's, uh, it's a huge part of the culture there.
2: We, we call it, and this is absolutely true, we call it a corruption tax.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And, and it, part of it is simply true. That's the way a lot of work gets done. And this is in the public sector, the private sector, education sector. I've worked in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And this has been true, you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm lots of organizations are simply run like this. People who who want their government to be run like a business have never worked for either.
1: Yeah.
2: Because you yeah. know, you don't you don't really get how completely corrupt and how fucked up a lot of companies are until you get near the top and realize, "Oh, you know, the reason the reason for the dysfunction is that guy."
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not cultural, it's not organizational, it's not market driven, it's that one dumbass in the corner who can't be fired. Yeah. That's the problem. And if you got rid of him, problem solved. Yep. Um, but p- part of the problem of Chicago specifically is the culture of corruption that's so endemic that's so it's known all over the world. Is the perception it causes is ten times worse than the actual fact. People will stay away from Chicago, will not open businesses here, will steer clear of it because they think you got to pay off an alderman.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, you know, it's 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 once you lose your reputation. It's really hard to get it back. It, it's, it's really
0: hard to get it back.
2: Uh, I, but let's get back to Thomas Frank. Well, I and want to get
0: back to Thomas Frank because one of the things that has come up lately with um, dealing with a, being on Blog Talk Radio today, mm-hmm. and I was talking with some women about humor writing, and I, I was a call – I should say I was not invited guest. I called in. But uh, one of the no, things. No, no,
2: you, you crashed the gates. Yeah, you, yeah, I
0: crashed the gates of the mm-hmm. blog Tech Radio. This is posted at my blog, so if you Google, if you Google Blue Gal, you'll find it. Um, the fact that we have been told, our generation has been told certainly, in the past twenty years, that what you really need to do is market yourself. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, if you just market yourself the right way, and certainly women are told this constantly, oh, you know, really be, need to be in the business of learning how to market yourself, whether you're a writer or a businesswoman or whatever it is. And I think there is a sea change uh, going on, and you and I have talked about this in the pregame, that there aren't any jobs left to market yourself to. Yeah. And there's all the marketing of yourself at some point, simply becomes not only uh, non-productive but counterproductive. You're yes. you're actually <laughs> eating yes. away at your self-image and and yeah. where your where your art is headed. I'm just thinking particularly as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm always looking for an excuse not to go out there and push myself beyond <laughs> the blog and get rejected. But um, certainly in in journalism and media, uh, the jobs just aren't there. No. Uh, to, They're gone. To market yourself. And one of the things that Thomas Frank brought up about this, you know, again, the denial of uh, everyday economics as opposed mm-hmm. to we're, we're always allowed to watch Wall Street and the arrow go up and down and up and down. You know, that sure. that's allowed by the media. But uh, to talk about day-to-day economics, you know, one of, the re- one of the things that happens when you don't talk about day-to-day economics and you keep your audience – ignorant of mm-hmm. looking at anything beyond their own dinner table or the or Fox News uh, is that then you can go and work for Walmart sure. at substandard wages and sure. take whatever the boss says you should be doing because mm-hmm. you don't know any better. Yeah. And it's kind of like <laughs> there um I'm I'm gonna jump all over the place here, but it, I'll follow you. it struck me today when I was looking at a um, photo essay of Mother Jones Magazine. And follow me here, and I, I this does lead somewhere. There's a photo essay of about 12 to 14 executed prisoners, what their last meal was, what they requested. Mm-hmm. And an artist had reconstructed, though a photographer had reconstructed those meals and put them on prison trays with prison cutlery, plastic cutlery. And... Um, and photographed them, and showed when this person was executed, what they ate, what they requested at their last meal, mm-hmm. and it was things like two boxes, two miniature boxes of Frosted Flakes was one uh-huh. of them, cheese doodles and a Kit Kat bar and a Pepsi. Uh-huh. Uh, someone asked for um, fresh fruit mm-hmm. and a sa- and a little tiny salad and again a uh, uh, soda. Someone asked for five different kinds of two-liter bottles of soda, which were arrayed as a kind of a rainbow. The big two-liter bottles, um, mm-hmm. wanted all of that. You know, five big huge bottles of soda, that's what I want. You know? yeah. And, um, and, and that's a luxury. And it really spoke to the socioeconomic class of the people who were being executed directly. Mm-hmm. And there were comments below saying, wow, why didn't they choose filet mignon with Bernays sauce? Why didn't they choose, you know, to have lobster? Why didn't they choose to have the most expensive, difficult-to-prepare meal mm-hmm. that they could possibly have? Sure. And it is so outside of their frame of reference, just like mm-hmm. the the woman I saw. I, was, I went and grabbed some coffee on the way back. I was driving back from St. Louis yesterday, and I picked up some coffee, and a woman walked in and was standing behind me, and she had on her Walmart name tag. And on the name tag, in big numbers, it says 15 years of service. And I just about fell over. How could anyone work for Walmart for 15 years? That's her whole career. Sure. And all she'll ever have is, you know, this minimum wage. Now, maybe she's a manager. Who knows? You know, she might by this time, she may have been promoted a little bit. But Mm -hmm. she's worked for the worst corporation, you know, Mm -hmm. the most greedy corporation, (laughs) the one that has destroyed small town America.
1: Most talk about
0: small town America, and yet if you ask her, "Do you believe in small town America? Do you believe in small town American values?" She would be the first to jump up and say, "Yes." You know, she would. Sure. And yet the the people who are talk spoken to by Karl Rove and Lee Atwater and and their sense of grievance Mm -hmm. is built up so that they will vote Republican. How could anyone in that economic situation vote so incredibly drastically against their own economic interest? Mm -hmm. And the the reason is because if they were served a last meal, it would be Frosted Flakes and five different kinds of soda. They have no frame of reference for
2: any li- any for better life than that. any
0: better life than that? And shopping and working at Walmart is accepted as what America is. And you, you know, be cheap and work cheap.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that there's so, a. There's I, hope, a I hope
0: that all fit together in some it's grand it. mosaic because I, was, it I was wanted quite, it to.
2: That's why I, I was very quiet because it was very <laughs> well put and it was it was quite to the point and it really does sort of get as as we sort of do on all these, or most of these uh, podcasts, is we, we sort of come back to some really core issues. And one of them is, you know, what do you do yep. when you have a, a substantial percentage of a population that is simply unreachable
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and economically suicidal? I mean, y- you can talk about small town values, you know, all you want, but look, when you talk about middle class values and the good old days. Uh, well, okay, let's talk about what was what was the work life like at the peak of the American empire. What made it great? Well, what it made it great was massive government expenditure.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Massive government programs to build houses and schools and bridges and roads. And massive government expenditure to do rural electrification in the uh, Depression and mm-hmm. uh, in the Johnson administration. Uh, massive government expenditure to, uh, to turn out uh, engineers and scientists for NASA. Um, massive government um, expenditures for the GI Bill, um, low-cost loans so that you could open up your own business, mm-hmm. um, destroying the manufacturing base for the rest of the planet so that America would be the, just about the only one left was was important. Yep. Um, and labor unions.
0: And unions, yes, I was going to say. You know, don't forget
2: the labor unions. protection. Um, you know, there there was uh, this. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but you know, people note that uh, the last time immigration um, there was an amnesty for immigrants, it was under Ronald Reagan. Yep what they never mentioned is that the reason mm-hmm. Reagan did that was to was to create a pool of cheap labor in yeah. this country so that he could destroy the, labor uh, the middle unit. class, yeah. destroy the labor unions, you know, help out all of his agribusiness friends in California and wreck the economy of the people in Kansas who depended on that. So, yeah, there, there were there were, in fact, times when when income was more equitable, when it was possible to climb out of the five liter bottle, you know, as your vision of heaven. Um,
0: well, and there wasn't such a transfer of wealth building from the manufacturing sector to the banking sector, yeah. which was created. We don't, we cannot stress enough how deliberate that that transfer was. Yes. That was deliberately yes. done. And well,
2: the the most dangerous thing to a conservative um, regime is the middle class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because the middle class, as we've said before, demand things. So we need to get rid of them, and the quickest way to do that is to is to turn this country into what you know, a very stable system, a feudal system, si- a feudal system feudal is a very stable system. system. Yeah. But but to do that, you need to create enough people who can, who can no longer envision a better time, yeah. and mm-hmm. no longer envision that the we'll world could possibly be. And take
0: any job, take any any work conditions and any wage.
2: And, and who will participate? And who will actively participate in their own subjugation? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what conservatism is built on. Modern conservatism is built on getting people to participate in their own economic reenslavement. Yep. And yeah. if you don't get and to that- take
0: the blame for it, and to yeah. take the blame for it at the same time, we really need to stress that mm-hmm. you know the guilt that people feel over losing their houses mm-hmm. when this was really a deliberate thing that happened and was the fault of mm-hmm. a very few people, comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. It's not the fault of the millions of people who are in foreclosure or near foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the fault of the banks and how they invested internationally and in very risky ways mm-hmm. with n- with no consequences.
2: Well, and I, I do wonder, this is one of the things I was having... Uh Um, A cup of coffee earlier today with a local, a famous local blogger, a famous local news person who shall remain nameless um, (laughs) because we're kicking out around ideas for, you know, how do we, the economy sucks. How do we make money? Mm, (laughs) Good question. Good Good for you. It's the common lament. (laughs) Um, But one of the things uh, our wide ranging conversation came up to was, you know, how will this randite? Uh, Ayn Rand objectivist libertarian theory that the only people who are unemployed are losers and Mm -hmm. parasites Mm -hmm. survive when you have a 20 to 22 percent unemployment rate for five years.
0: Well, you know, it's going to be good for John McCain.
2: It always is. <laughs> it always is good for John McCain. But the, you know, when when you are one of those rabid, yeah. you know, the I, I want my tax dollars. You know, the, stealing money out of my wallet. I'm a wealth producer, and, mm-hmm. and everyone's a parasite except me. And you keep stealing my money to give it to those losers over there. And when when those kind of you know, you know, self centered, cocksucking losers who have no concept of how the world really works and who are who are completely self satisfied with their bigoted, narrow minded view of how uh, how the world really works, when 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 their ox gets scored, when they end up on the unemployment line, when their kid comes home to live with them, then what do you do? Yep. Because then it's you and the whole premise, the whole Kansas idea, the old Tom Frank's idea is all built on the assumption that when bad things happen to other people, it's their fault. When they happen to me, it's just bad luck or it's the fault of immigrants or gays or whatever. But when you get laid off and you can't find a job and somebody comes and, and nails the foreclosure sign on your house and you've spent the last 20 years as Archie Bunker yeah. believing that that everybody else is a loser except you and everyone else is lazy except you and the only people in the world who are worth anything are you and people who think like you. What do you do then?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, what and What really – and I think at some point you either – you know, Robert Byrd passed away this week.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: And this is going to seem a little bit of a jump, but Robert Byrd had an arc to his life.
0: Yes, he did. Yes, Robert he Byrd
2: did. was a Klansman, was yep. a, was high up in yep. the KKK, opposed civil rights was a genuinely bad guy back, you know, as somebody pointed out when you're 94 years old and you were born in West Virginia, you're going to be a racist.
1: Yeah, right, right.
2: That's all you ever knew. And but he had, you know, and this is one of the things that the right delighted in pointing out was, you know, cuz you this, you know, pointing out to the conservative movement that their entire movement's based on a strategy of recruiting uh, bigots from the south deliberately with open eyes and as a part of a calculated strategy, is something that conservatives really hate bringing up in conversation. Yeah, they can't deny it because it's a fact, and they can't deny that they know it because you know that they know it. So the, the the strategy is always to divert the conversation, because well, what about Robert Byrd? Yeah, he was yeah. a Klansman. Yeah, he was. He was a Klansman, you know, ninety years ago, eighty years ago, seventy years ago. Yes, he was all those things, and then he changed. Mm-hmm. And then he got better, and then he apologized. And I am you know, I believe in redemption, yep. and I believe in growth, and I believe yep. in the arc of a personal life. You get better over time, you learn from your mistakes, and you move on. George Wallace, at the end of his life, yep. you know, apologized. I Said, was in
0: Alabama when George Wallace died, mm-hmm. and one of my ex's colleagues, uh, I, I saw him that day, and he had been around town and seen black people crying. Because George Wallace had died, mm-hmm. and he couldn't not, not the comedian it. George Wallace, not the comedian George Wallace, the real, yeah. the real segregation net today, segregation tomorrow, segregation <laughs> forever. That George Wallace, mm-hmm. because he had uh, redeemed himself. He had, he had had you know lost his ability to walk, and yeah. humbled himself and learned that you you can't hate. You know, hate can't be the basis of your life, mm-hmm. and uh, had worked with the black community for the last 20 years of his life, uh, mm-hmm. humbly and with a sense of uh, togetherness and and pride in, in making a better world and there were there was weeping going on in the black community in Alabama I was shocked my no. colleague was shocked but yeah there is an arc of a life and that was someone who really was in a, in a yeah. Faustian way yeah literally brought to his knees yeah um,
2: well and, and George in Wallace world, you know George Wallace you know for those of you out there are younger listeners <laughs> um, the, the, some fast facts about George Wallace that actually bear on this conversation because yeah. George Wallace chose racism as a strategy.
0: Uh, yeah, that was his campaign policy. Yeah, he, absolutely. He did
2: not he absolutely he ran as a reformer. He ran as a he was the when he ran the first time against uh, the guy who wanted to beat him uh, named Patterson. He was endorsed by the NAACP. Wow. Can you believe that? Wow. I mean George Wallace was endorsed I mean granted there's not a lot of choice in in the race but George Wallace ran as a reformer. Mm-hmm. And he got his ass whipped. Yep. and what did what did he do at being a politician, what did he being learn? sort of,
0: he learned from that. Yeah. yeah,
2: and being the Rod Blagojevich of his day. Yeah, uh, you know, having no soul and no conscience at that age, he simply said, "What is the most efficacious way to win in the South? I know, I need." And he and I, I have to use a, a, a tough word here, but it's the word he used. He said, "I'm never going to be out niggered again."
1: Yeah,
2: and he okay. went and hired himself the most violent wing. Of the Ku Klux Klan and said, "Win me the governorship." Yep. He went. He went and aligned himself with a domestic terrorist organization, yep. and he won. Yep. And he won every election thereafter.
0: Well, and he was he was someone who had, who's had such a lack of soul that you know yeah. he ran his wife. Yeah, he, in, he put his, up his life, in his place
2: exactly right, and she with won.
0: everyone understanding that he would be the governor sure. and that she was just totally. Mm-hmm. They were they were sidestepping the law, which said he couldn't serve two consecutive, three consecutive terms. Yeah. He had served two. He wanted a third. It. Everyone knew, knew, and his her campaign slogan was, "I'm gonna let George do it."
2: That's right, and she won.
0: And she won. And, and, and then he, she died. It was so, <laughs> again. It was absolutely Faustian. She we're not did laughing at her death. No, we're laughing at but the. But she ad- did two things for the state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. One thing she did was clean up. The mental health hospitals, the state mental health hospitals, which Mm -hmm. were hellholes, which people were sitting in their own feces and uh, there was no uh, standards whatsoever for treating anyone humanely in these state-run hospitals. And she saw them and she said, not on my watch. We're going to clean this up. And she raised money and she did it. And she made the legislature do something about it herself. Mm -hmm. And the second thing she did for the state of Alabama was die in office. Mm -hmm. She got cancer and died. And of course, George Wallace couldn't assume the governorship at that point. It was the lieutenant governor, Governor Brewer, who was a liberal, who was a yeah. new Democrat, who was the new <laughs> South Democrat, brought Brother on right. the ticket for balance. Uh huh. And of course, then Brewer was defeated by <laughs> I think Wallace. I
2: believe crushed <laughs> is the right word. And, well, and but that's but the point being that George Wallace. A man of the South yep. co- completely understood exactly what it takes to win in the South, which yep. is appeal directly to people's bigotry, their sense of grievance, yep. and they will vote against their own interests every single time. They'll yep. vote to cut their own economic throats every single time as yep. long as you give them someone to blame who's different than they are for their problems. And if you live in the South, it's real easy because yep. you have a you know 200-year history of, of – uh, of, of grievance and rage and fury and impotence and failure Mm -hmm. and treason, frankly Mm -hmm. against the North. Yep. So, and, and what people, the, the, the last bit of the George Wallace story and why it bears on this directly is that George Wallace then ran for president.
1: Yeah.
2: And George Wallace came in third. It was George Wallace and, um, And Curtis LeMay, crazy-ass Curtis LeMay was his vice president, crazy-ass bomb everybody with a nuke, nuke everybody, Curtis LeMay was his vice president. And he won several states. And had the election gone a little bit differently, George Wallace would have been a kingmaker because the person who came in first was Richard Nixon. Nixon. The person who came in second was Humphrey. The person who came in third, George Wallace. And if the electoral votes had been a little bit different, George Wallace would have, George Wallace would have controlled the electoral yeah. bloc that would have decided who's yeah. president of the United States. Yep. And Nixon looked at that and said, that's the that's, future. Yep. That's the future. And so the, the question you have to ask yourself is, as a conservative is, yes, did Robert Byrd start off as an absolute dyed-in-the-wool Klansman?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, he did. Was he a Democrat? Yes, he was. What's the arc of his life? Well, the arc of his life is – As he moves away from his bigotry, he becomes more liberal. What's the arc of the conservative movement? The conservative movement, beginning with Nixon and slightly before Nixon, embraces that which Robert Byrd ran away from. It embraces racism. It looks at it as a a tactic, as a method. And it, it cultivates and flatters and cajoles and goes into the pulpit and tells all those redneck bigoted, sons of bitches, we're like you now. Yeah. You can trust yeah. us. Yeah. And it cultivates bigotry and it cultivates ignorance and hatred and intolerance. And for 30 years they have been moving along a different arc, getting darker and crazier and meaner and more vicious. And they've passed several milestones. They passed the yeah. Reagan milestone. Yep. They passed the Gingrich milestone yeah. where Gingrich had had published little booklets teaching Republicans how to demonize Democrats.
0: How, what were traitors, called, Yes, yeah. Exactly.
2: And then it passed through the time delay and, of course, there was the impeachment and then – and here we are and George Bush was another new low and here we are with the Obama administration with an entire party that refuses to participate in the governance of their own country because they believe it's in their economic self-interest. I'm sorry, in their electoral self-interest to sabotage this country Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they could not do any of this without the willing complicity of 30 million Americans who – who are the people that Thomas Frank writes about? And here we are facing the what Krugman is calling the third great depression, yeah. or the third depression. I'm I'm afraid he's probably right. Um, mm-hmm. With that at our back,
0: yeah. And and where do we go from here? It really mm-hmm. is uh, a scary time. And mm-hmm. if it's going to if it's going to go toward hatred and bigotry, mm-hmm. then this country isn't what I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it if the arc, because um, America has an arc too, <laughs> and you and I have talked about the long arm of history,
2: mm-hmm.
0: moving slowly, but but how, how does it go toward justice? How
2: does it bends? It bends something, but it bends towards justice.
0: Bends towards justice, mm-hmm. and that's the country I want to live in.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, one, one of the things I, I think I'm pushing this over time here. I don't want to do that. Right. But one of the things I want to mention is that when people talk about Making arguments in public and, and persuasion, and what will they say? What will the American people say? You know, part of me says, "Look, half of this country doesn't listen to anything.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And the other half have made up their minds.: Yeah, so you know, when people are making and I, I'm guilty of it myself as anybody else is, you know, making very very good, sane, rational, um, heartfelt, passionate arguments for for their point of view. At some point I shrug my shoulders and go, Well, the people who the only people who are going to listen to this are people like me. Yep. And people who so so who are we trying to persuade? Who's we're going who are we going after? And the answer is as always, the the few people left in the middle.
0: Yeah, and and also I think one of the things we've talked about before is how essential it's going to be for all of us to set aside our own <laughs> uh because because the left is made up of 45 different agendas mm-hmm. we're all going to have to set those aside and really work toward electoral finance reform yes because when the that great group in the middle that mm-hmm. center that you talk about mm-hmm. that only looks up from their ipods every 4 <laughs> years <laughs> the what you know and and if you know if they could vote on their ipods they wouldn't even look up then you know yeah. <laughs> but they only look up from that, every four years, to say, oh yes, I, you know, I can't be wow. listening to Keisha's new song. I have to go vote. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Who's on the ballot again? What's going on? <laughs> Wait a minute, we're still at war. We're still in Afghanistan. Are you kidding me?
0: Really? You know, really that's how oblivious yeah. yep. a whole lot of voters well, are. Well, it seems like we've always been at war. You know, Katie mm-hmm. Abrams. No, we. Yep. Why you have been at war my whole life. Well, that's true, actually. <laughs> why don't you, you know? think that's a problem? <laughs> why how come you're okay with that? Why are you? why are you why are you supporting that why did you vote for that last time yeah so and and we've got to keep the pressure on Obama to end this war I'm, I'm glad this McChrystal thing uh, put a spotlight on that again mm-hmm. and, and people are questioning the policy which is terrific uh,
2: well, and that, that actually exposed to, you know, it, it kicked over a, a rotting log that you and I and other bloggers have talked about for years, mm-hmm. but it finally made it into the headlines, which was David Brooks and Laura Logan.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Matt Taibbi wrote a, a fine takedown of Laura Logan, um, wife of defense contractor yeah. and CBS foreign correspondent yep. and David, David fucking Brooks, you know, one of my hobby horses, whose response to... This article about you know McChrystal and his staff having such contempt for their civilian leadership and saying the stuff out loud and saying it on the record, their response was essentially, "How dare reporters talk about this?"
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, they, they, yeah. wow. They, you know, everything that we said during the Bush administration is still there. They, you know, there's mm-hmm. they are the leaders of the media. There's no such thing as a liberal media. There's a corporate media.
1: Yes, and exactly. they're
2: always they always defer to power. There's always. You know, David Brooks has never found a powerful man's dick. He wasn't happy to suck. Yep. And that's, what, that's how he makes a living. He writes long PNs to you know, various powerful people from, from Scooter Libby to General McChrystal and then bemoans the fact that you know the, the times we live in are so unfair to great men like these rather than saying, you know, I'm a journalist. Yeah, and a fellow journalist, you know, nailed this guy doing shit he should never have done. Yep, yep, and that's what makes it newsworthy. And I applaud this brave reporter for reporting the truth.
1: Yep, yep.
2: But it, but the, that that whole idea that that's that's a profession, that's part of what you do as a journalist, has been so completely drummed out of yep. or or yep. drudged out of their system. That we don't have a media anymore. We well, really that's don't.
0: that's it. It's media reform and campaign finance reform are the yep. only things worth working on, yep. really.
2: Because and because the, the information stream is corrupt and the money stream is corrupt. Yep, and, it's, and you have to fix stick those, those two
0: things, you're Absolutely. not going to end the wars. You're not going to no. <laughs> solve the economic problems. You're not going to bring populism. Populism is going to be corrupted into racial bigotry and uh, the uh, the grievances of people who are are not thinking. And uh, it's just it, – it's what we need to work on. So thank you, Drift Glass. I enjoyed thank talking to you Blue today. Gal. This was good. I enjoyed talking to you too,
2: Blue Gal. Yeah,
0: and we will talk again next week. I want to thank our listeners. We <laughs> forgot to we forgot to do this part last week. I had to put it in the – We the
2: forgot discussion. to beg you for money. We're Please gonna- <laughs> give us money. Please.
0: Please don't well, you send us dough. We have a website. DGBG dgbgpodcast.blogspot.com mm-hmm. where you can listen to past episodes for free. There is a yep. free player there where you can just click play and listen to any of them mm-hmm. uh, that we have recorded since January. Uh, and we've done one every week since January 20th, ah, I believe. That's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, we we also have an opportunity for you to contribute uh, to our podcast costs. This is not free for us, even, mm-hmm. though, even though we're... Unemployed and on food stamps and, you know, all true. I crawled,
2: I, I'll have you know, I crawled out of my refrigerator box just to do this.
0: <laughs> on Lower podcast. Wacker Drive, yes. On Lower Wacker Drive, and I will crawl back in once we're done. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, not to make fun of people that are actually living no, in refrigerators. No, just, this we is, are
2: in entire solidarity with yeah, people who with are, people economically, who are distressed.
0: economically distressed, and we are, uh, mm-hmm. but we need support from you to continue this, because it does cost us money to actually uh, publish our, our musings on the air. And uh, you can email us. We'd love to hear from you. We love hearing from our listeners. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, if you have any links you want to share with us, uh, I'm doing the roundup at Crooks and Liars for the next couple of weeks. Mike is on tour with Joe Cocker again this summer. all right. So uh, send us an email at dgbgpodcast.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And on that note, uh, uh, it's cooled down here in Springfield. I don't know how it is in Chicago.
2: It's like 140 uh, degrees
0: in Chicago. <laughs> and the,
2: yeah.
0: and yeah. the Internet kitties are saying, curse you, Barack Obama.
2: <laughs> the Internet kitties the are saying, they have little signs, they have little sandwich board signs that said, we'll play you out for food. So, <laughs> take it away, Internet kitties.
0: This podcast is produced under a Creative Commons license, copyright 2010, Driftglass Blue Gal Podcast.